Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies, even if the previous administration does. We <laughs> we are your hosts. I am Miss Melmore. Um, I'm Mr. Kriggers. Yes, he is. And off of the wave of jubilation this weekend, we are getting back to business with our seventh uh, Friday the 13th episode. Um, obviously, it's going to be Friday the 13th, part seven, New Blood, um, as we, we take on the final Friday the 13th this year. Yeah, this is the second one of the year, mm-hmm. third one. This one had multiple Friday the 13th, right? Yes, I believe that um, I read like the breakdown of how many Friday the 13th you'll have, depending on... Um, different days falling on different days there's something about the year beginning on a sunday i believe the year if the year begins on a sunday you have more you have than a, one yeah i believe you have two at least two i'm not don't quote me on that but it's something like that yeah yeah well, i'm pretty i'm pretty sure 2020 began on a sunday yeah and to have a blue moon you have to have a 31 day month and that month has to begin i believe well, the, the full moon has to fall on the first day. Which is what happened in October. Yes, and then it falls on the last day. And that's why we had a blue moon, a blue full moon on Halloween. So, speaking of, how was your spooky Halloween? Spooky Halloween. I was listening to a podcast. Um, I don't know these podcasts. It's like comedy podcasts that uh, Miss Charlotte makes me listen to. Um where they did this bit about somebody who was talking about their, like, haunted house, and it's this paranormal investigator who always would say, like, yeah, you know, when we're investigating spooky ghosts, and she said she did this because she likes to, like, you know, she's like, you know, you gotta speak about them in their own dialect. (laughs) So... She's just trying to relate to the ghost. Yeah, so um, that's that's in my brain when I when I do that. But it was a good Halloween. We um, got some noms, and I had some. I bought some Dracula sparkling rosé, and Ooh, um, yeah. So I'm drinking the last of it now. Actually, surprisingly, still sparkling. Um, wow, a little bit. Um, yes, and we went down to like this like picnic spot by the river. It was very cold. It was colder than I expected it to be. Um, and, you know, had noms and wine and then went home and watched some uh, pumpkin, Charlie Brown. You're a good, oh, you're a good pumpkin, pumpkin, Charlie Brown, or whatever the fuck it's called. I've seen that in years. Yes, it wasn't on TV this year because Apple TV got, like, the exclusive contract for it. So we had to stream oh, it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do they have it for all the Charlie Brown stuff, I wonder? I, th- I, we were, I was wondering the same thing. We'll have to see when with the Thanksgiving one. Yeah. But uh, watched that and then watched a couple Halloween episodes of Bob's Burgers. Didn't do too much, but there's definitely some kids. It's funny because this was the first year that kids actually did that bullshit thing they do in movies where they start trick-or-treating at three in the afternoon. Like, it actually happened this year. Yeah. Yeah. So they had trick-or-treating where you're at? Yeah, so, like, there was, like, some signs going around in West Philly that was basically like, hey, here's what the neighborhood has decided is, like, the protocol for trick-or-treating this year. So I think part of it was that they were going to go out early. Um, That's interesting. But, yeah, so it was a a nice 
chill Halloween. And, you know, it's a bummer because I think I told you about the uh, crazy Halloween party, the Lambda, the, like, queer law students throw. The one that did not happen. Yeah, it did not happen. Did not happen. (laughs) Would have been great if it was this year because it would have been a Saturday. But my thought is next year they can have it on Saturday and then at midnight we can all go crazy because it becomes Halloween. Because it's leading into Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. So next year won't be as bad. We can salvage, you know, we as a society can salvage what (laughs) this year should have been, I think. Yeah. It's not quite as synced up as I think all of us would have loved it, but it'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I believe, I believe in us. But uh, what about your, your Halloween? You did some, some interesting stuffs. Yeah, I, so, yeah, like kind of everybody, especially people um, like us who are really into Halloween was really bummed that obviously the state of the world wasn't going to um, lend itself to like big celebratory Halloween stuff this year. Uh, but my cousin, uh, his birthday is two days after Halloween. And so he said, you know what? Let's not let the virus screw everything over. Let's just a couple of us go somewhere far away from people so we don't have to worry about COVID and have a good time. So we ended up at a cabin in the woods in West Virginia. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, spooky cabin in the woods, West Virginia, on Halloween, full blue moon. Just enjoyed the atmosphere. Really creepy. Played lots of spooky board games. Watched lots of spooky movies. Um, including the, some Friday the 13th. Plus, we did Halloween H2O and Hellfest and Trick or Treat and Ready or Not the one morning. Um, we played the Thing board game and the Universal Monster board game. And some other ones that weren't super, super horror, but like mm-hmm. horror adjacent. Horror adjacent. Yeah, and like, you know, scared each other by pretending there were sounds in the woods and whatnot. <laughs> I mean, it was very, this cabin was, was very nice and very, like, definitely something that would have been a set piece in a Friday the 13th movie. Nice. It actually reminded me of the house from the remake because it had, like, those huge floor to ceiling windows. Like, basically, mm-hmm. all the windows were windows type situation. Yeah. Um, it's too many windows. I don't want the. The woods it's, seeing me. It's, it's far too many windows. Um, but we got a great view of the moon that night, like, you know, out in the woods. Because mm-hmm. you know, there was nothing to obstruct it. So that was pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. So <laughs> any other spooky things um, related? Horror adjacent, rewatching Picnic and Hanging Rock on Amazon. Um, rewatching Hill House and... Yes. Right. <laughs> um... Rewatching Hill House and Bly Manor, um, which we never got to talk. I think about the Bly Manor. What was your What was your take on the? I really enjoyed the season of Bly Manor. I know a lot of people. Well, I wouldn't say a lot of people didn't enjoy it, but there seems to be a critique of, oh, it wasn't that scary, or it wasn't as scary. But I was like, well, that that wasn't the point this time around. It was telling a very different kind of story yeah it was more like a a gothic romance mystery type story i would say um i but i I think it still had some creepy moments i think it was well done i think it was well told and well performed and very Mm. sad oh my god i it was so funny because i was getting through it and i was like okay like here it's happening it's happening 
okay, that's a bummer going through the whole thing. And then I got to the, like literally the last shot and like, I just, that, that's what got me. <laughs> it's really powerful. <laughs> I can actually, I was just like, oh my God. Um, but no, yeah, I mean, it's very good. It's interesting because I'm curious how, how I'm going to feel about it upon rewatch with knowing now that so much of the show hinges on like the last 40 minutes, like landing correctly. But, um, no, I enjoyed it a lot. And, um, I thought, you know, it was incredibly acted. Um, yeah. Some really strong performances. Yeah. From like everyone involved. Yeah, no, completely. Um, and a lot of those people are going to be in midnight mass. Yeah. Um, so that's exciting, which, which I believe they, they started production on now. I know that the, it was supposed to start in March and obviously did not. Um, but I believe they've started now. Very good. Um, but yeah, no, good stuff. And did you see the, the video of the British people watching the first episode of Bly Manor? No. Oh my God. It's on my Facebook. Colleen posted it. It's like a Google box like video. And it's like, they had a bunch of British. I don't know why they're all British, but they are, but they're watching by manner and they're getting their takes on it. <laughs> this one couple's like, Oh, so I guess the house is like haunted. Uh, the, the old, you know, governess killed herself. And, and the husband's like, well, you wouldn't take the job then, would you? <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm here for like, dry witty to yeah. the point British commentary on everything yeah no it's it's pretty it's it's enjoyable um but yeah excited um it was I was what would you so I was talking about this with a friend what if there's another haunting series what do you think or what would you want to see adapted oh that's a good question and I feel like I had an answer for this when I was talking to a friend as well mm-hmm Questions, what did I say? Oh, I think I said Rebecca. Rebecca, interesting. I have not that, heard uh, that one come up yet. Which I think could make for an interesting third season. It just had that really awful Netflix remake. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't see it. I've just heard that it's awful. Yeah. I guess <laughs> I should be clear about that, listeners. Um, I don't know firsthand. I've just heard that. Um, but yeah, I think... Flanagan could do really well with that material. And I think he could also play really well off of Hitch- Hitchcock's version from mm-hmm. the forties. Um, so that's what I'd want to see. How about you? Um, it's interesting. I had not considered that. I was thinking more in terms of like what centers around a location. So mm-hmm. what came to my mind was House of Seven Gables, mm. um, which I think he would be, which is almost too obvious for him you know, being from Salem to, to adapt it. But I think it could be a pretty good one. And it kind of plays into like the generational, you know, hauntings and curses yeah. and all this stuff. Um, so yeah, could be interesting. I think that could be interesting. Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to see him tackle some sort of the mythology of his hometown. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that he hasn't, he's kind of stayed away from that. He really has. And I don't know if he's like sitting on something or he's waiting till he feels he's ready, mm-hmm. but that would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what came <clears throat> to mind for me. I saw some other people mentioning a couple post stories. Like they were like, imagine him doing telltale heart or something. Mm. Um, but no, I'd like to see a Rebecca. It's interesting though, too, cause you bring up the, the Hitchcock version and he was talking about how adapting this with turn of the screw, he was like, 
all right, well, nobody's ever going to be able to beat the innocent. So I have to just tell a completely different story. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, I feel like he, he wouldn't be daunted by the fact mm-hmm. that Hitchcock has made an adaptation. He would just, he would say, all right, well, then my challenge is to be, you know, is to separate my version, yeah. which I think is what you need. Which even with the first season, I feel that's what he did with The Haunting. Like few, you know, what horror movie, few horror movies are going to get past that as a bar. So it's like, okay, I have to tell a different story. Exactly. Um, He's proved he can do it. He's proved he's not afraid to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And to to work sort of in conversation with these like really iconic, even um, Dr. Sleep. He had to, basically he's having a conversation with, Kubrick's The Shining way more than the novel ever had to just mm-hmm. because the nature of making that film yeah, um, and bringing Danny back to the overlook. And he did phenomenal. Dr. Sleep is like one of the best horror movies. Yeah. Last year. So <laughs> yeah. He can do it. <laughs> no. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for him. Any, any and everything that him and, and Kate Siegel throw out into the world, including more children. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're just, they're such gold. They're, I mean, she's phenomenal. She was not good at her accent, but she was good at her acting. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was like that, that meme of that woman where she's like, hmm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, ah, it's a good thing. There's a lot of narration by Carla Gugino in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I also thought that the guy who was the husband in that was like a, like they look like they wanted to cast Michael Hughesman. Yeah. It did seem like he was sort of like, like the Aldi's version. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that's good. That's, um, that's basically been dominating my horror sphere, I think for the past couple of weeks. So. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, but yeah. Um, I finally read Harvest Home. Yay. I did see that you were reading it. Yeah. Did did, did Grace Everdeen cause the blight? <laughs> she caused the blight. Um, longtime listeners will know that in 2018, something like that, <clears throat> we, did, we did a series of episodes on what we called Harvest Horror, the last of which we covered um, the 1978 miniseries, The Dark Secret of Harvest Home, starring Betty Davis. Which brought us a lot of joy for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's based off of a 1970 novel that's out of print and hard to find. Miss Mel found it for me for Christmas, I think that year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you said that. You were like, yeah, it's hard to find. I haven't found it. And like during the recording, I bought it on Amazon. <laughs> I found it from from a seller who was like, there was like one available from this seller on Amazon. So I was like, whoop, it's... <laughs> whoop, got it. Got I actually it. think it used to be a library copy because it came with like a... I tried to pull it off a um, barcode on it. It looks like it, it might have been a library copy. Um, yeah, but it's awesome. And it's, you know, it's it's the edition like from the 70s and it's fantastic. And so, so I've had it for a while and I meant to read it last year around Halloween time and didn't get to it and finally got to it this time. And, um, and then I rewatched the miniseries after... I finished it and it's pretty beat for beat. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really faithful adaptation. Nice. Um, so, and yeah. And then I guess just, I don't know. Um, was watching, you know, spooky movies all throughout October and kind of taking a break from that. Now I usually kind of take a break in November. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like I, all the the pile of books that I've saved that aren't horror that I'm like, I've been I'm okay, but I want to read this, but I can't because it's October. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Although funnily enough, after I finished Harvest Home, I ended up picking up another horror novel. I'm reading a new horror novel right now, Plain Bad Heroines. Interesting. By Emily Danforth. She wrote The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Oh, yes. I have heard, I've heard tell that she had another book coming out. Yeah. And so this is, this is a novel for adults. It's her adult debut. And it's really interesting so far. It's very meta. It's this story of these girls at an all girls school at the turn of the century who died in a terrible accident. Oh my God. And they were kind of, um, the weird outcasts because they were basically like in a relationship with each other and they weren't hiding it. Mm-hmm. And then, so then someone has written a book about their story and that book is being made into a movie. And that's what this book is about. It's about the movie, them making the movie. Yeah. And so we, you know, so we're following, we've got the author of the book. I'd love a good meta yeah (laughs) the star of the movie and this like b-list actress who is able to break through and get like the second lead in the movie whose mom was like a slasher queen in the 80s and so they're like the main characters in the present day while we're also sort of like finding out about what happened in the past that led to the the two girls death as well as these other strange deaths this sounds like fun it's really fun. It's really fun so far. And I'm only like 150 pages in, but I'm really enjoying it. It's called Plain Bad Heroines. Plain Bad Heroines. By Emily M. Danforth. Um, and it's like everybody is gay. There's like all the... Well, she did write The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which was like... Right. Exactly. So all the main uh, female characters are like all lesbians or queer. Um, maybe the actress is bi. I can't remember. Um, and then like all the supporting, like the director of the film is gay and their best friend is gay. And it's just like, so it's going to that, which who isn't, which um, the funny thing is, is like people like poo poo that stuff sometimes where they're like, not all gay people know each other. And then it's like, no, actually, yes, all gay people do know each other. Right. Right. Well, it's about like, it's about gay people finding each other. Right. Yeah. And being comfortable around each other, yeah. you know? So it's like, I mean. Look at us. We've got a podcast together. Yes. So, but speaking of our podcast, we should, um, I guess, dive in, right? Dive in, yes. All right. So, break it down for us. What's what's happening? What's good? All right. So, um, as Miss Mill said at the top of the show, this is our latest Friday the 13th special. If you don't know um, what that means, it's basically every Friday the 13th, we cover... Um, another installment in the Friday the 13th franchise. Tonight is part seven, The New Blood, directed by John Carl Beekler. And what we're going to do is basically we're going to pick apart the film. We're going to take a look at its production. We're going to analyze it. And um, then we're going to kind of just put it in, in context with the rest of the franchise. Which so, is more difficult than you think in this movie. It really is. Things start getting really sticky here. Um, So we'll do our best. Uh, But first, let's take a good old listen to the trailer.
All right, so let's start off our discussion um, with our opening question, which is just, when did you first see this film and what were your first impressions? You wanna go first, want me to go first? <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't really have too much of a story. I, like it was back when AMC still did their like horror marathons, because for some reason they only like to play like the last four Friday the 13th films. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think that that's about the time that I first caught it, um, which was in pieces. And then eventually it was like all at once, um, which is the same thing that happened with Jason X. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it wasn't really, I, I want to say that I came across these later ones before I saw the original Friday the 13th. So I think I had no real context for this and it's interesting because Jason's really not in this all that much I actually think he, he's like it's one of the um least screen times for him or something like to that effect um and I know they don't say his name until almost an hour into the film but which is crazy to think about yeah um but yeah AMC back when they still did their their horror series like marathon that slowly turned into nothing. <laughs> yeah. They whittled it down to, to non-existence. Um, mine's the same. I, I can't actually even pinpoint exactly. I just know that it, it, it definitely would have been one of those AMC showings um, during Fear Fest. Like you said, when Fear Fest was actually a really solid like month-long marathon. That's the first um, time I remember watching Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, that was always a staple for them. Yeah, Jeepers Creepers, um, and these and these ones too. There was like that weird, like I feel like there was like a weird chunk of years where they were always just showing the later ones, and then mm -hmm. there were like two or three years where they would show like part two, three, and four, and like they didn't show the later ones as much, and then like suddenly they were back to showing like almost exclusively the later ones. It was really weird. There was rarely a year where I feel like you could watch, like where they were screening all 10 of them. Right. I think it's interesting too, because on Netflix it would only have like the later Halloweens. And so I'm, I'm wondering if it's just a matter of it was cheaper to license those. So they didn't bother trying to get, cause like somebody like FX may have had the rights to like Halloween yeah, it, probably something like that, right? Like yeah. deals, licensing, and rights. And of course, this the this franchise has a very convoluted and messed up history with who has the rights to what at any given time, mm -hmm. um, especially between Paramount and New Line Cinema. That comes up in one of my notes. Does it? It does. <laughs> it's so messy. Even to this day, it's so messy, um, which is why there's been no news since the remake of a 13th Friday, the 13th film. But I suppose we'll get to that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so this is part seven. So let's give a bit of a recap of the first six films, just to make sure all of our listeners are on the same page, Can right? You do it as well as they do it at the beginning of this movie. Oh my God. We have got to talk about that. <laughs> Um, I probably can't, but, um, let's, let's see, just pulling up my notes here. All right. So listeners, of course you'll remember in the original 1980 film, we detail the killing spree of Pamela Voorhees played by Betsy Palmer, who murders the counselors preparing to reopen Camp Crystal Lake. 
where her son Jason drowned on June 13, 1957. After all her friends are killed, our final girl, Alice Harding, played by Adrian King, fends off Mrs. Voorhees and decapitates her with a machete. Dun, dun, dun. Then in part two, which came out a year later, Jason, who is revealed to be alive and fully grown, having been living in the woods around Crystal Lake for over 20 years... <laughs> finds Alice and kills her to avenge his mother, then returns to Crystal Lake to guard it from all future intruders. Five years later, which I don't know why they did such a strange time jump in the second movie, but it is where that they was like screw up the timeline. The, um, the, the Babysitter 2 had a stupid time. Like, it was one year off of from what it would actually be. Like, it was a really dumb time skip. <laughs> It was a dumb time skip. This is a phenomenally dumb time skip. It's the movies are one year apart, but the internal timeline is five years apart. I don't know why. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> five years later, a new group of campers arrive at the lake to set up a new camp, and Jason slaughters them all, save for Ginny Field, played by Amy Steele, who finds a cabin in the woods with the severed head of Mrs. Voorhees set up in a shrine. Ginny fights back and slashes a machete through Jason's shoulder, leaving him for dead. Um, do you want to recap part three? Sure. Uh, in part three, which came out in 1982, but remember, we're, we're several years ahead. It's the future. Right. <laughs> um, but it takes place the next day in the future. Jason removes the machete uh, from his, soul, his shoulder and finds his way to Higgins Haven, a vacation cabin where Chris, played by Dana Kimmel, has arrived to spend the weekend with some friends, and Jason hides out in the barn, killing all who enter. He takes a hockey mask from one of his victims and slaughters all but Chris, who seemingly kills him with an axe to the head before she is taken away in an ambulance, now hysterical. In the final chapter, which came out in 1984, uh, it begins with Jason being found at the barn and taken to a morgue. Um, once there, Jason kills the coroner and returns to Camp Crystal Lake. A group of friends renting a house on the lake find themselves terrorized by the mass killer, leaving Jason to attack Trish, played by Kimberly Beck, and Tommy Jarvis, played by Corey Feldman. While distracted by Trish, young Tommy attacks and violently kills Jason. Right, and so Jason was dead. He actually does die, something a lot of people forget when discussing this franchise. Yes. But then, of course, you had a new beginning in 1985, which was the fifth installment, where we see an older Tommy Jarvis, played by John Shepard, now committed to a mental halfway house as a result of the trauma after the events of the fourth film. Paramedic Roy Burns, played by Dick Winan, uses Jason's persona to carry out a series of murders at the halfway house as revenge for the death of his son, whom one of the patients at the institution killed years prior. So this film for the second time, does not involve Jason as the killer. But then in the sixth part, Jason Lives, uh, we find Tommy, now played by Tom Matthews, um, released from another institution and seeking out Jason's grave that he digs up in order to burn the body, but he inadvertently resurrects his nemesis when lightning strikes an iron fence post that has been rammed into Jason's corpse and reanimates him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now undead, Jason immediately heads back to Crystal Lake to murder the new summer camp workers. Tommy defeats Jason by chaining him to a boulder at the bottom of the lake, though it is revealed to us in the final moments that Jason is still alive, 
under the waves. Talking about this is just makes me think of that conversation they have in Scream 4 about the Stab movies. And they're like, no, Stab 5 introduced time travel. Time travel. And that's by far the worst one. <laughs> Which is applicable to this franchise because I still think A New Beginning is the worst one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where we are, uh, folks, as we pick up in uh, Part 7, A New Blood. Um, internally, let's kind of talk a little bit about like where we are with like the franchise as a franchise and horror as horror at this point mm-hmm. in the eighties, shall we? Yes. The late eighties. Um, definitely by this point, which is not surprising given that this is the seventh installment, the franchise is beginning to make less and less money. Uh, with each installment, people really hated the fifth movie, primarily because it didn't involve Jason. And even though the sixth one brought him back, it still wasn't that well received. Um, audiences liked it a bit more than critics, but even then audiences were kind of like, what's happening? Mm-hmm. So there was this big train of thought going on over at Paramount that they needed to find a way to compete with the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, which was the most dominant horror franchise at this point. Dream Warriors had come out a year prior in um, 87 and had done really, really well. So Paramount's idea was basically that they needed to up their special effects. Of course, Friday the 13th franchise is known for its um, practical effects um, and all of their really creepy set pieces. And this eventually led to the introduction of the supernatural element um, in order to give them an excuse to have more special effects and this idea that it would keep viewers on edge. So what we get for this film is essentially Jason versus Carrie, nice. which, which is what the main writer of the film came up with. Um, John Carl Beekler, our director, He said he viewed the film as Firestarter in the first act, a traditional stock and slash in the second, and Terminator versus Carrie in the third. (laughs) Which I think is a fair way to look at the film. Yeah. Um, Because there is very little suspense in this film, right? Yeah. Like, there's not a lot of that stalking and creeping there's not even a lot of like the theme music is used that we would get in like the first couple of films where like jason's out there in the woods hunting these people it's very action oriented um yeah and like the throughout it like you know it's one of those things where it's you almost forget that jason's um there until he shows up or that he's a he's a factor yeah and when he does it's like these quick, brutal, insane kills. Like, of course, like, yeah, he, we know he's undead now, according to the mythology, he's gotten a lot stronger, but like, they are very Terminator like kills. Like Mm -hmm. he is very unstoppable at this point. Um, and they really tone down the blood, um, to the point where there's almost no blood. The new blood is no blood. The new blood is no blood. That's not necessarily how it was written. That was more the battle with the MPAA. But yes, I did. I have that also in a note. Yeah, but we'll get into that. So, Miss um, Mel, there were some things you wanted to tell us, sort of about um, looking at uh, slashers and stuff at this yes. point, right? Yeah. So, um, 
it's a good enough place to do it. I feel like, you know, talking about Friday the 13th, um, and this goes into slashers in general, but basically, um, throughout the eighties, like what sort of like created this idea of the slasher and, um, you know, where, where did this kind of constant churn of like, you know, watching teenagers die sort of come from. And it's interesting because, um, you know, traditionally, like, you know, you look at the slasher and it goes back to like, um, like Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus was like considered one of the first kind of real, like bloody works of, um, you know, visual art. Um, if anyone's ever seen the movie version, um, or seen, uh, Game of Thrones where they, they reenact the famous, um, cannibalism scene. But, um, in the 20th century, they had, I can never say this, the, the Grand Guignols. Grand oh, yeah. Guignol. It's this theater um, that was known for its shows that had excessive, excessive violence um, while exploring themes like neurosis, insanity, panic, and fear. Um, I don't speak French, so I'm going to butcher some of these show names, but a couple of them were uh, Le Laboratoire des Hallucinations uh, by Andrew Andre de Lord, which featured a doctor performing a graphic and insanity-inducing brain surgery on his unfaithful wife's lover. Ooh. Um, these are all, like, live on stage, too. Like, obviously, he's not doing an actual brain surgery, but also, like, isn't he? Right. But um, <laughs> uh, There was Un Crime dans Un Maison de Faux. Ah. Also by Daylord, about two old women in an asylum who blind a fellow inmate with scissors. Damn. And La Brazer dans la Nuit by Maurice Level, uh, about the revenge of a horribly disfigured man against the woman who poured acid on him. So these are the kind of things you would see in these theaters. And they ran from the late uh, 19th century into about like the 1960s. Um, and, you know, they were, like, just these horrific displays. Like, it's, like, basically, like, a combination of a sort of haunt and theater. Um, yeah. And then, you know, in the 1960s, um, that kind of thing starts to translate into film with Psycho and Peeping Tom. And you have Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, which is sort of, you know, it comes out in 1974 and is the first film to kind of blend a lot of these elements together of like teenagers and you know violence and debauchery into all these this sort of element of oh for some reason it's fun for us watching teenagers get picked off one by one yeah definitely and black christmas same year. yes black christmas um so this kind of evolves into the boom of slashers in the 80s um where you have these elements added of like home invasion and stalking and child molestation um, and just sort of this, like, it can't happen here repulsion, which comes from um, sort of the white flight out to the suburbs um, and the fear of, like, this other coming in. Like, you'll notice, like, a lot of these killers wear masks. Like, their faces are distorted and, you know, the weapons that they use are very, um, you know, you almost want to say, like, sort of, like, street fighting weapons. Like, they've got knives and machetes and that sort of thing. Um, they're often dressed in black, but the other element, um, and this is me postulating this, this is not, you know, this could be very wrong, but, um, the 1981 abduction of Adam Walsh. 
I feel played a huge part in slashers because, um, so Adam Walsh was this kid in Florida. I forget how old he was. I want to say he was like around 10. Um, even younger. He might've been younger. He was, he was a, he was a child no matter what. Um, but he was in a Sears department store, um, with his mom and father or his mom and father were like in the middle of a divorce. He might've just been with his mom. I can't remember, but, um, she leaves him to hang out to play some video games with some other children who are there and she goes off. Um, eventually he and the other children actually get kicked out of the Sears cause the two other boys were like fighting and the security guard just kicked out all the kids. So he's now outside the Sears where he disappears. Um, his mother goes to find him. She can't find him. They can't find him anywhere. They can't find him on the security cameras. Um, so he's declared missing, potentially abducted. This is in Hollywood, Florida. You know, there's this huge search. Two weeks later, um, his decapitated head is found in a drainage ditch um, in the somewhat nearby city of in Indian River County. Um, so... The media response to this was insane. Like, it was a nationwide thing. It was this huge panic. And there was this sudden thrust of fear of, like, abductive children. There was made-for-TV films about this. There were several laws that were passed um, to, like, prevent or respond to child abduction. Um, And criminologist... Criminologist? Criminologist. Criminologist. There we go. Richard Moran... um, said uh, of this time period, uh, now all play dates and social lives of children are arranged and controlled by the parents. The fear still lingers today. You know, and this is where you get the birth of, you know, going over to somebody's house and, you know, you, the parents being like, who are they? Do I know their mom? You know, and, and that sort of thing. Like this all comes from Adam Walsh. This is sort of the birth of stranger danger. And I think it's no coincidence that it starts in the 80s and then you get these slashers that are all about stalking killers, invading, you know, quiet homes and quiet communities and, and child molesters and, and all of this. I think you're absolutely right to draw that connection, Ms. Mo. I don't think it's off at all, mm-hmm. um, especially like, yeah, this is where that concept that became so prevalent in the eighties of stranger danger came from mm-hmm. um, because, you know, someone unknown and unconnected to the family took Adam. Um, and yeah, like, like you said, like this was massive, yeah. like mass. I mean, we weren't around then, but just as, as from what I understand, it was a big deal. Yeah. It, it completely changed everything because un- until this point, like, you know, it, 50s, 60s, 70s. It, you were hitchhiking. All, it was fine. All kids were latchkey kids. Yeah. You know, like you you could be trusted to, or not trusted, but like parents just, you know, like be out until sundown and then come back. Or yeah, like stay in the arcade while I go shopping and I'll find you in a couple hours or this and that. There just mm-hmm. wasn't this, this kind of, the style of parenting that I think we, that we grew up with or that we're familiar with or even helicopter parenting that, that was not a thing. Yeah. Um, which I think is also important for people to remember when they like cast contemporary judgment, um, cases like Adams, Mm -hmm. um, 
Like, why didn't she keep him with him? Why didn't she, you know, stay with him? It wasn't because she was a bad parent. That just wasn't. Wasn't what you did. Yeah, it wasn't what you did. It wasn't on anyone's radar. There wasn't anything to fear. I mean, there obviously was something to fear, but that's that's not what. Yeah. What culturally it was. So I yeah, excellent point. I Thank think you. bringing that up. But yeah, so I mean, obviously here now, seven deep into a franchise, it's a little less uh, intellectually prevalent, um, but I think it gives a good. Uh, you know, kind of context to, you know, why were there so many slasher films in the 80s? And it's like, well, because it spoke to this thing that people were really afraid of um, all of a sudden, all at once. Um, you know, and as crazy as some of these, you know, slasher movies eventually ended up becoming, they still were at their core. Like, okay, a man is, you know, a, a stranger with a knife or a machete or what have you is stalking a group of you know otherwise innocent people in a area where they're supposed to be safe like you know whether it's their home or their their vacation house or a camp you know yeah yeah that's the big thing right like the violation of previously safe spaces yeah but yeah that's my little plug there for that um that was great thank thank you you. oh did you i'm sorry did you say your prologue should we should we talk about the prologue to this (laughs) (laughs) whatever i said sure (laughs) so so yeah so this is not the first friday the 13th film to open with a recap of previous um events in the franchise Mm -hmm. like they've essentially done that from the beginning because they do it in part two but what I think is interesting about this one is that it's like, it's like the greatest hits, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's got not, the, its own like background music. Yeah, it does. It does. It, and it's not like giving you like your bullet point. This is what you really need to take away recap. Like the one we just did. It's really just showing us like the craziest kills, the weirdest moments and it's also really different because this is the only prologue with a narration, right? Yeah. We get um, Walt Gorney is actually narrating this, like, it's like a three-minute segment. He, listeners, played Crazy Ralph, the harbinger mm-hmm. of doom from the first two films. Um, and so he's telling us everything we need to know in order to understand what we're about. If you're coming into this cold and you've decided that part seven is the place to enter in on... He's got you covered. Right? There's kind of this hilarious idea where it's like, who is going to start with part seven? Um, But I guess we also have to remember that, you know, you didn't have the internet in 1988. And so, you know, the last time... That's true. Like, you can't just Wikipedia the... uh... Right. And, like, you might have them on VHS, but um, most people, like, probably didn't see... The Friday the 13th since the last time it was in theaters and with Jason lives in 86. So, yeah. Um, Fair enough. I actually, I much as I really hate this franchise's tendency for those recapping prologues, except for this one. I like this one. I don't know if it's because it has 
the narration. I don't know if it's because it's relatively short. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that line at the end. People forget he's down there waiting. Um, I actually like this prologue. What do you think? I like that a lot too. And it's funny because I was thinking about that too, that line where, he, you know, they show him tied to the rock and they say people forget he's down there waiting. And I thought, yeah, that's a really good intro if I felt like Jason ended up mattering at all, really, in this movie. <laughs> um, like, I feel like almost it was like a wasted, like it was really good, but it, it's, it's unfortunate that he wasn't really sort of the menacing force, I think, that um, he could have been if it were, you know, a different, a different story. Yeah. So you're thinking, like, yeah, I feel like I get what you're saying. Like, they that sets him up to be more of a presence. And then later the film just sort of makes him the plot device. Yeah, like, he's, you know, he's, um, you know, from Tina's point of view, he's, like, the manifestation of all her guilt and everything she's carrying around about her father. And it's, like, a physical punching bag she can, like, actually interact with. And, you know, from his point of view, he has no fucking clue what's going on because he's you know, been dead and undead and now he's been under the water for however long and, you know, there's nobody here from the original film that really is like, oh yeah, this guy, I remember him, I hate him. You know, you don't really have that kind of pull so I feel like, you know, there's less of an emotional weight to Jason's presence than there has been in past ones. Yeah, because there's actually like... And I guess we'll, we'll kind of talk about this with, with the timeline, the fucked up timeline, because it's set so long after. Mm-hmm. But, like, no, no one's familiar with him. So they have that – remember that weird scene where she finds the clippings in the desk? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't play well because it's so obvious that they're, like, trying to give these characters, I guess, more stake in knowing, like, that – he's real and that he's out there and that he's killed before. I don't know. No, I find that really strange. I think Um, it would have played better if they'd introduced it sooner, like, and done the sort of traditional, like, Oh yeah, we're camping out here. We're out at this cabin where supposedly a killer was buried in the lake, you know? Yeah. Like you could have had, you could have easily have had, like, I think it's Russell, the character who, um, it's like his uncle's cabin that Mm -hmm. they're at. Yeah. He easily could have been, you could have had something like, oh, my uncle never comes up here because, like, he was here X amount of years ago and, like, all these kids got killed. Yeah. No? Like... Yeah, like, nobody seems to be aware of, uh, that. Yeah, which is, which is odd, and, yeah, the first time we really, I think, in the franchise where the history of Jason is not revealed by a character that knows the story. Yeah. It's revealed it's props. It's, it's the newspaper clippings. Yeah. Which is so weird. Um, but anyway, so this film um, was filmed in Alabama. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a strange choice, but I guess... One that works. It doesn't not look like New Jersey. I, to be honest with you, I wasn't really sure where it was supposed to be anyway. <laughs> yeah, so they filmed it in Alabama. Um, 
But the most fun fact about that, I think, is that because of that, they had to have an alligator wrangler on set. (sighs) Yeah. For the water scenes, for the lake scenes. Oh my god, that's horrifying. gators lived in that lake. Holy shit. I get scared of gators when I'm playing Red Dead Redemption 2 and I run into them in the digital world. I can't imagine, like... First of all, I don't fucking go swimming in large bodies of, like, organic (laughs) water. (laughs) Like, I don't mess with that stuff. We have we we need to do an aquatic horror series. Yeah, I, don't, I, I need out. to yeah I need to like really dig into what yeah. what's behind this. Um, but yeah, no, I mean like, and the actress that um, I can't remember her name. We'll get to her later when she has the the new death scene in the lake. Yeah, like, that adds something to it when you know that there were alligators. She's naked in front of the alligators. Yeah, like they, yeah, they had a wrangler. This guy was there, like a local guy. Oh my god, or I can only imagine what um, he looked he had, like. Like a, a shotgun on hand or whatever. <laughs> he had a and shotgun the- in one hand and a hook in the other, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. One it eye. Just cro- crocodile Dundee, basically. That's horrifying. so yeah. So it's filmed in Alabama um, on a budget of two point eight million. It made nineteen point eight million at the box office. Now, I know to all of us listening, $19.8 million sounds great. But this was considered declining. The best way, I think, to really understand why that's not a good number is if we compare it to um, Nightmare on Elm Street for Dream Master, which came out the same year or the next year. I can't remember Dream Master, if it was 88 or 89. It was the comparable film between the two competing franchises. Dream Master um, was made on a budget of 6.5 and made 49.4 million dollars. Yeah. So, essentially 30 million more dollars than this movie made. Freddy was winning. (laughs) (laughs) So should I? I have a fact about this now that I can share in terms of Freddy and Jason. Please do. So. This actually, this film was supposed to be, they had planned it to be the Freddy vs. Jason film. That's right. Um, but they were unable to because New Line and Paramount like couldn't get their shit together over competing rights. Um, so instead they went with this sort of off-brand Carrie Firestarter character <laughs> versus Jason. But um, this was the first time they had broached the idea of like, oh yeah, let's get them together and like get them to you know, kill each other. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's right. Like we see it in the grains of the story, essentially. It's Jason going up against not actually Carrie, but Carrie, you know, going mm-hmm. up against another horror icon. Yeah. Um, God, it's wild to think that they wanted the crossover here for the seventh one. Like what would that have looked like? So we wouldn't get it until the 11th installment yeah. the wow i know what would that have looked like in 1988 versus 2003 when we did get it yeah i think a lot of well i don't know because you would have had the practical effects coming in i'm from... just thinking too like 
where are they in their franchises? Yeah. Like now we have the benefit of them being kind of both deep into their mm. franchises and, you know, as of right now, like done with their franchises. That's true. But what does it look like when they're kind of, you know, like when Nightmare's like in the peak of its popularity? and Right, because if they had done the crossover here, Nightmare only had three films. Yeah. Dream Warriors was the most recent Nightmare one. Yeah. That's interesting to think about. Yeah. If anyone's got some fanfic for that, send it our way. I'm I, sure I, they do. <laughs> I'm sure I there's a lot it. of fucking happening in that fanfic, too. Like, it's it's Freddy fuck Jason. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the story idea, since we're talking about it, um, it came from and was primarily written by a writer named Daryl Haney. He was the one who sort of, like, had the light bulb, Carrie vs. Jason... Um, moment um, and the proposal of the original title, which was supposed to be Friday the 13th, part seven, Jason's destroyer. The eighties were a weird time. Weird time. It's like a complete one eighty from six Jason lives. Um, and actually the one documentary on the Blu-ray is Jason's destroyer, the making of Friday the 13th, part seven, the new blood. Cute. Um, so fun, fun, fun times. Uh, Haney had, um, strange writing credits and would go on to have even stranger ones. He almost exclusively wrote like horror sequels or Skinamax movies, huh. um, which take that as you will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was also an actor. Um, but again, he almost exclusively appeared in low budget B horror sequels. Um, however, he is in one really good movie called self-defense um, which, if you like a good siege movie, like Assault on Precinct 13, self-defense is, is for you. Huh. Um, so he was the primary writer. Another interesting fact to note, though, is that the secondary writer is credited to someone named Manuel Fidello. And if that sounds familiar to you, I call bullshit. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Manuel Fidello is actually a fake name, a pseudonym that has been, probably not anymore, but was at the time given to writers who wanted to work during WGA strikes. So basically it was given to writers that crossed the picket line in order to do work so that they could conceal their identity. Um, and to this day, nobody knows who chose to cross the picket line in order to write Friday the 13th, part seven. Give us the, <laughs> give us the fanfic about that person. Right? I mean, they've never come forward, so I don't know what that means, but it's worth thinking about. This is what you came forward for. Um, so those are our writers. Writer and some mysterious other person who helped. We don't know in what capacity. Um, and the film was directed by John Carl Beekler, who was specifically sought out by um, Paramount's executive producer for the Friday films, Frank Mancuso Jr. He wanted Beekler specifically for this film because not only did Beekler have experience directing, he had done Troll, the original Troll, um, which, if you haven't seen it, there is a wizard in that movie whose name is Harry Potter. 
Oh, yeah. Cute. And um, and a very underrated movie called Cellar Dweller. Cellar Dweller. Um, Cellar Dweller. But he had also, he had, so he had those two directing credits, but he also had a lot of work in um, special effects and makeup artistry. He had done work for a lot of Charles Van movies. Um, he did like Toys and Dungeon Master. He would do Reanimator, or he did Reanimator. Um, so he was the choice for that. He had also gotten firsthand experience helping with special effects um, for Dream Master you know, the competing franchise. Um, and he actually did special effects or he would do them, um, for Halloween four. So he hit all three of the big slasher franchises. Um, and then he went on to direct Ghoulies three, Ghoulies go to college. (laughs) So, you know, cute. Um, but yes, so Mancuso wanted somebody who with directing and special effects, experience because that was something he really, really wanted to up in this film, of course, in order to compete with Friday the 13th and all the crazy stuff they had going on during Freddy's dream sequences. Um, and so I guess we can take this moment to, how do we feel about the special effects in this movie? So I specifically thought about them in the scene, you know, the final fight scene where she's like moving shit around. Mm-hmm. And how specifically 80s it is to have those stop motion, like, movement of objects and how, like, goofy it looks. Yeah. I thought about that, too, when um, when she lifts the flower pot and throws it at him. Mm-hmm. And it has, like, the one guy's head in it. And it's kind of like, uh, if that could move just a little bit faster. Yeah, or the, yeah, like when she moved the TV, when she threw the TV at the doctor, and it was like yeah. a slow crawl across the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that they don't like hold up. It's not like you're seeing strings or anything. Yeah. It's just kind of like, eh. Could be better. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, you know, we've also got, there's a lot going on in this movie that is like still really cool and like kind of impressive. Like there's a lot of collapsing buildings. Mm-hmm. Explosions. Um, yeah. Explosions. This is the first time there's an explosion in the franchise. I mean, the whole house goes up. Yeah. Um, which is kind of cool and kind of wild. And then of course the other half of what Beekler brought was his experience with makeup and his influence on Jason's look in the film, which is considered one of, if not the most iconic of the Jason looks um, where you kind of get him in that decaying version of himself, like where you can see his rib cage mm-hmm. and we can see part of his jaw through the chipped part of the mask. Um, how do we feel about Jason's look in this film? Um, it's one of those things where I had to remind myself like, Oh yeah, he's like a corpse and he's supposed to look like a monster at this point, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked the physicality of him from uh, Kane Hodder. Um, And just like, especially like when he fell down the stairs and he fell through the stairs, just like the sense of just like this giant weight of a thing just collapsing through, um, you know, the, the, the wood of the stairs. Like, I think what I liked more or less was his design and more like the physicality that um, was brought to, to him. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I like the look. I like 
those glimpses of his rib cage. There's something about that that's really creepy to me. Uh-huh. Um, and I like that detail before the mask breaks when you can see his jaw moving. Yeah. Uh, in the in the left corner is is good. Um, so yeah, that was sort of the impetus behind bringing uh, Beekler on board. Um, and behind uh, the story and the screenplay. Now, of course, uh, speaking of the story, we have to acknowledge the weird screwed up timeline, right? Uh, the previous installment, Jason Lives, came out in 86, but actually takes place in 1990. If you match up everything, you know, from the internal timeline, from the various films, like the recaps we were talking about. Apparently, New Blood is supposed to take place 10 years after Jason Lives, which would set this movie in the year 2000. <laughs> I mean, aside from the prologue with young Tina, which, like, people have guessed that's maybe 1992. Yeah. Um, I did find there's a fact on IMDb, you know how you can see the, mm-hmm. like, trivia things for films, that says um, the prologue with Tina... Young Tina takes place on October 13th, 1991. Because we do see her standing in front of a calendar that says October 13th. Okay. Um, that wasn't a Friday that year. There was a Friday the 13th in September mm-hmm. of 91. Yeah. Um, but if we do that, take the prologue in 91, then that would mean the bulk of the film takes place in 2001. Um which is really weird to think about because obviously in 1987. Yeah. uh, Right. And obviously most of these fucking idiots are running around in the most quintessentially eighties outfits. That's wild. Um, But it is interesting to note that uh, because of the prologue, this makes new blood the own only the third movie that we can confirm takes place on a Friday the 13th. The original does, and so does part six. Um, no, nothing in the other films actually indicates that it is Friday the 13th. And in some cases, we know for a fact it's not, like in uh, part two, three, and four, because those are with all in a couple days of each other. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I also kind of want to take a, a moment at this point, since we're talking about time, mm-hmm. um, I feel like this film has a weird sense of time. Yeah. Like, in, like within its own events. Yeah. Like it's not clear to me how much time the film takes place over. I think it's just two days, but there's a lot of like weird stuff where it's like it's day and then suddenly it's night. Well, and there's a lot of like characters going back and forth between the two houses and taking strange amounts of time to, there's also what's as nuts as missing, I feel like, for a really long time, and no one's right. concerned about it. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. What's your, like... I could see how, that. How, how long does this take place over? A day? Two days? I several, was under the I impression that, like, the guy had been missing for several days, but then when we would check back in with people, they would say, like, oh, it's only been a night or something like that. Yeah, right? It's weird. Yeah. So I'm not sure what we make of that. Yeah. Aside, I'm, aside from saying, I don't think they were paying attention to that yeah. as, uh, as writers. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Right. So let's dive into some more uh, about the production and the cast. Um, this film is heavily edited, as I think is very obvious uh, when we look at the kills. Um, yes. Miss Mel, I think you mentioned something earlier about yes. um, how we, we're going to talk about that. But so many of the kills, we see Jason's initial attack and then we instantly cut away. I feel like the most obvious one is the kill um, of uh, the the guy who's into sci-fi on the couch when he mm-hmm. hacks at his neck and then we cut away right, like, even, like, a second before he gets him. Like, it's a weird cut. It is a really weird cut. We don't actually even see, like, we're like, was he hit in the shoulder? Was he decapitated? Because it's so weird because we see his head later and then we're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Jason cut his head off, but there's nothing in the actual kill scene to indicate that. And it's funny because it cuts away to the blank floor and you think for a minute you're going to see the head like roll by or something, but you don't. Jason just walks away. Isn't that so weird? Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's, they, they, they talk a lot about, um, a little bit in in Crystal Lake memories and a little bit in the the director's commentary on the Blu-ray that Beekler knew the MPAA was going to come in and essentially like hack his film up. Um, and so I guess he, like he made the kills purposely over the top, mm-hmm. um, sort of knowing that they were going to take out a lot. Um, and there wasn't really a chance for him to push back or even for Paramount to push back because this film was a rush job. Mm-hmm. Um, which is weird because there is a two year gap between this film and the last one. But, um, so you'd think they would have had more time to, to fight for it creatively, yeah. but I guess not. Interesting. So. I do know that it is among the most edited in the entire franchise. It, it, they submitted it nine times before they finally got an R rating. That's crazy. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of times to submit, you guys. <laughs> yeah. Damn. All right, uh, let's touch a little bit on the score. Um, Harry Manfredi, um, famous composer who had done the score for the first six films, did not do the score for this one. Um, He was busy, I believe. I don't think it was a lack of interest. I think it was just because he was busy. So the score is composed by uh, Fred Mollen, who would also do the score for part eight, um, which is regarded as the weakest score. In the franchise, I don't think this one is particularly strong either. It's just sort of a rehash of a lot of the old music. Yeah, it's a rehash. It's a lot of retread. There's a lot of strings involved Mm -hmm. in the score, which makes it sound kind of ugly. Um, uh, Beekler also didn't like it. Um, The only thing he enjoyed was Tina's theme. Um, That weird, like... Um, but he felt overall the score felt too much like a TV film, um, instead of a, instead of a Hollywood film, a couple other, uh, fun facts in regards to the music. When Tina crashes the car after she has that vision of her mom, Mm -hmm. uh, dying, the music that we hear is actually like a twisted version of the Halloween theme. Huh? Yeah. I don't know why. I, I couldn't find out <laughs> where that came from. But, yeah, apparently it is. Um, 
And in terms of music and songs, there were five songs contributed to this film by the Canadian prog rock band FM. Um, we hear most of them during the sex in the van scenes, of which there are far too many. Why I feel like there was a lot of cuts to people having sex in cars randomly, which I think also contributed to the, the lack of understanding of time. Was just like all of a sudden people would just be like, because my understanding was it was like three in the afternoon. And then you'd cut to people like having sex in a car and then they'd walk out of the car and it would be nighttime. Yeah, it was nighttime, and you're like, what? Yeah, and also, like, those sheets, you're all having sex on the same, like, no. Mm -hmm. You're in a huge house. Go upstairs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they contributed a couple songs. There's also two songs from Stan Meisner, um, Coming Out of Nowhere and Heart of Ice. Um, I'm not familiar enough with the songs themselves mm -hmm. to know when they play. I, I assume it's during the birthday party that never happens. Yeah. Um, but he was a, a big songwriter of the 80s. So now let's talk about our cast of characters um, and the actors who play them, which will be so much fun for all of us. This is a <laughs> huge cast. Um, I think Fives is bigger, but there's a shit ton of people in this movie. There was a lot of people. Like, there was a lot of random friends in that house so many so many all right so uh thus far in the franchise six different people have played jason or the jason stand-in uh -huh. for the first six movies um but uh new blood is the debut of kane hodder as jason um easily the most famous jason um easily a horror icon. Um, he would go on to play the character for the next three game or for the next three films, sorry, as well as playing the character in the Friday the 13th video game, uh, which sidebar, my cousin played a lot during our weekend <laughs> at the cabin. And it is really fun yeah. to watch people play that game. Have yeah. you ever played? It or I have not. It? You would really like playing it. I think. Yeah. You could, cause you can, you can pick different like settings from yeah. throughout like the first eight films and you can pick, you can play as campers from like parts two through nine, I think, or you could play as Jason. It's a lot of fun. Interesting. But anyway, so yeah, this is the debut of Kane Hodder who he's kind of regarded as the Jason. Um, Mancuso, executive producer, insisted on Kane. He had this new vision of Jason going into this film as an evil spirit trapped in a decaying body that was unstoppable. And he had seen Kane Hodder um, and thought that he would be able to perform through the makeup, which is a big deal um, because the makeup in this film gets pretty heavy and continues to be heavy. Mm -hmm. And I think he does. I think he does, I think he's able to play as Jason the whole time. Like when he has the mask on, I get a lot from him. Um, mm -hmm. The scene with Maddie in the shed mm -hmm. where she makes that noise and he kind of looks up and we're like, oh, he heard her. Yeah. Like that's done really well. Um, and then when, once the mask is gone towards the end, um, there's that, 
you know, the moment when Tina uh, opens the furnace and she's mm-hmm. going to have the fire come out and light him on fire. And he kind of like looks back. Like, I think he does perform through the makeup. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I liked his, I mean, what I noticed, I think more was his physicality. Um, yeah. But definitely, I think he, he, you know, it felt less like a guy wearing a, a suit. Yeah. Well, and you bring up another big point, the, the physicality of, of Jason. Like, he becomes such a bigger person physically in this film than he has been in previous installments. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, go back to part two. He's a pretty small guy. Yeah. Um, I don't know what we make of that. It's also something that happens with uh, Michael in the Halloween franchise. Mm-hmm. He gets a lot bigger as the installments go on. Um, I don't have a ton of thoughts on yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> it's just the yeah. thing that happens. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but basically, you know, from kind of at this point, we don't we don't really see it as much in this film as Miss Mill has said, but in future installments, the series really turns and we start to spend a lot more time with Jason in each movie than we do with the other characters. So the idea that you need a performer in this role makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the idea that Kane Hodder was kept on, to me, makes a lot of sense. Um, In terms of the character itself, I think it's a little odd that Jason goes back in the water for that one kill. Because it's an established part of the mythology that he's scared of water. Mm -hmm. Um, Other than that, I think... I would say I buy the character and I buy Hotter's performance. Um, and I oh, and this is when the hockey mask is destroyed. The original hockey mask that Jason acquired from Shelley in part three. Shelley. Um, shatters. Here's and, some, some nifty facts about Kane Hotter from, yeah, us up. we're talking about him. So one, part of why they wanted to cast him, uh, Beekler wanted to cast him, was he saw him in prison and um, really mm-hmm. liked the, like, I guess he ate live worms during that. Like, it was a thing he had to do, and he was, like, very impressed with, like, that. <laughs> I've never seen prison. I've heard yeah. it's good. Yeah, so um, he he was really adamant about going after him because if it wasn't, then the choice would have been C.J. Graham, who was awful. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, he's not a good Jason. I know I know that some people like him, but I, it doesn't work for me. Um, the other Kane Hodder story is I have that um, he his dressing room was a quarter mile like off of like the main set, I guess, like kind of up a dirt road. Wow. So one night he was walking back to his dressing room and he's in... Is that intentional? I don't know. I don't know if they did it on purpose or what, but... Like to keep him isolated from... Maybe. But he's walking up there and he's in full Jason stuff in the middle of the night walking up this dirt road and he, like, somebody comes by and they were like, oh, like, are you working on the movie? They ask him and he apparently thought that was such a dumb question that um, he just did not answer and the person, like, asked again or, like, had pushed for more information. So he, like, turned and lunged and grunted at the man. And, and the guy, like, took off running. And then the next day, supposedly, he went to the cops. And um, Beekler was like, okay, the sheriff's going to come talk to you about 
doing that. The sheriff never did come, but... I love that, though. Yeah. Because that is a dumb question. Yeah. Like, obviously, he's working on the movie. He's dressed as fucking Jason. This is the seventh installment. You know who Jason Voorhees is. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Um... Yeah, Kane Hodder. Um, he'll obviously be coming a lot and coming up a lot in the next many episodes we do of this. Um, regardless of whether or not you think he's the best Jason, I think we can't deny that he's the most iconic Jason. Um, so, so then opposite him, we've got Lar Park Lincoln as our final girl and protagonist, Tina Shepard. Um, before this, she had starred in House 2, the second story, and she would go on to have a recurring role in Knott's Landing for several seasons. Uh, she also did an episode of Freddy's Nightmares, so she crossed franchises a bit. And actually, this year, she played herself in a film where she is being stalked by a Friday the 13th fan who is obsessed with the franchise and obsessed with her because of her role as Tina. I, was, I just thought that was really that's, interesting. I have not that's goofy. heard of that. Um, to the point of people who almost were cast as Tina. Yes. Tell us. Um, both Carrie Noonan of Friday the 13th part six and Marta Kober of Friday the 13th part two had auditioned for the role and they did not know that it was a Friday the 13th film because they were work. It was under the working name Birthday Bash. Um, Carrie Noonan, when she found out it was Friday the 13th, was like, oh, guys, sorry, I can't do this. Like, I was already in the movie. Marta Coper, it came to their attention at some point that she was in another one. But I'm just wondering, how did you miss that two women from two different films in the franchise we're already in it. Like, did you not watch yeah. the other ones? Right? And, and like... Yeah, I mean, also- I guess it comes down to, like, casting agencies. Like, you have third-party casting agencies doing it. But, like, still, like, you'd think, like, they'd have a cast list of people who were... Exactly. ...in it and, already. And also... Well, I guess neither of the actresses put it on their... Maybe they didn't. You know, their, their, their previous work in the films. Like, who who did they play in those films? Um, a, Carrie Newton was Paula in um, Friday the 13th, part six. And then I'm not sure who oh, okay. Marta Cobra was. Okay. Paul, Paula was, Paula's a pretty big character in part six. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm correctly, if I'm thinking of the right character. Um, Marta Cobra played Sandra in part two. So she was one of the... Oh, yeah, yeah. Sandra. Classic kill. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't get it, but... That's so funny, though. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so clearly they didn't. And, uh, Lark Park Lincoln did. Um, thoughts on her performance? It's not... Great. It's, it's fine. It's, you know, I, I think there was room for depth there that did not happen. Um, like, I think that, yeah, the character is obviously just sort of like a rip off of 
several other characters who came before her, but you could have avoided that maybe if, you know, she had given it an emotion, you know, where it felt like it was real, as opposed to here's the the plot device that we need. We need her to be feeling this for this to happen, so. Yeah, I feel like for me, I, I don't understand why... She really doesn't... Her behavior is exactly the same in mm-hmm. each moment of the film. Like, near the end, when she's starting to get a handle on her powers and using them productively, she's still reacting the same way as she does as when it's an accident. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah, like, when she threw the TV, it wasn't clear. Like, clearly she was doing it on purpose because of her motions, but... Yeah. I couldn't tell what she thought or felt like she was doing. Yeah. So, so that was always strange to me. Um, uh, anyway, apparently there were major chemistry issues on set between Lar Park Lincoln and Kevin Blair, um, who now goes by Kevin Blair Spidus, who plays Nick. Um, and the reason for that, um, we'll use this as a good way segue into talking about <laughs> Kevin Blair um, is because uh, Kevin Blair is gay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he, so he played Nick. Uh, he was in the Hills have eyes part two and the facts of life before this film. After this, he would go on to have um, fairly notable roles on both days of our lives and uh, one life to live. Huh. Um, and that uh, while he was on set, he was sort of like, I'm going to phone in this performance because it's the seventh installment in a slasher franchise. And that he said that it was really easy to do so because it was a very relaxed filming environment. And he specifically mentions a lot of controlled substances. <laughs> you know. <clears throat> you know. Um, but yeah, so I, th- I think, or to me knowing that Kevin Blair is gay makes a lot of sense because it's true. There is no chemistry. <laughs> and Nick, don't you agree? It, yeah, it's... I, I couldn't tell who was weirder. Like, I was like, you, you know, you try and figure out which end it's on. Like, if one person's, like, just not vibing with it, but I just... Yeah. The whole situation was, eh. Yeah, it's it's odd. It's odd. Yeah. Um. All right. So then we've we've also got Susan Blue as Amanda Shepard, Tina's mother. Um. I think of her as she of the unmovable mullet. Yes. Because her hair does not move a centimeter throughout yeah. the film, and it's fabulous. Um, Susan Blue has done a ton of animation work, a ton. She is, she's really well known for her work on the Transformers, uh, animated series and animated movies. Um, she's not appeared on screen at all. She's in one episode of Freeze Company and one episode of Knight Rider and this film. And that's pretty much it. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, she, she's very much like the Kevin Conroy, of. Uh, uh, the animated world. I think Kevin Conroy is super well known for voicing Batman, not in a lot of on-screen roles. Same with Susan Blue. 
Um, Susan Blue is also um, uh, openly lesbian. Um, so that's two. If Miss Mel, if you could keep track of <laughs> queer people worked on this film, because we're going to be talking about that. Yeah. Um, she's openly lesbian. She's currently married um, to Tanya Themen, who is the sister of Paris Themen. Paris Themen played Mike TV in Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory. Huh. That had nothing to do with this film, but I thought it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, last of our main cast, we've got Terry Kaiser as Dr. Cruz. Uh, Terry Kaiser, very much a huge character actor of the 80s, almost always playing some sort of villain or creepy person or like a sleazeball. Um, most people will know that name because he plays uh, Bernie in Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> the corpse. <Yeah. laughs> um, there's also uh, of note um, the, uh, his death, Dr. Cruz's death was apparently the most graphic death of the film. Um, and you can find the stills for it online. Um, I looked at them. They look really, really cool, but they were, I mean, it was cut. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, his kill is the one where Jason has the... The flying saw. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a, what is that? Not like a hedge. It's trap. a hedge something. Yeah, 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 yeah. And cuts his stomach open or whatever, and we don't see any of it, which completely lessens the comeuppance for the character because what a scumbag. Yeah. Um, but you can see stills from when they filmed it online. It's He's like holding his guts and stuff. It's pretty cool. Um, thoughts on Dr. Cruz? He was an asshole. He was an asshole. It's interesting because it's, it's interesting that they went back to this concept of like a psychiatric situation, um, with a character. Cause we see that in new beginning, I believe it was. Um, and you know, again, like there's some evil person within the psychiatric field or who's meant to be helping psych patients um but i felt that this one stood out though as a sort of unique like he was a unique scumbag <laughs> yeah what made him new new unique to you new new unique um i the new way what? that like <laughs> um you know the fact that like his goal was to create you know the these situations and, and create her, you know, provide the stimuli for her to react in the way that she does, you know, for the sake of, you know, however many things, I mean, you know, like, I think this sort of like unethical medical silent science thing like plays well for me. And I don't yeah. need a lot to believe like, oh, yeah, like this white male straight uh, psychiatrist is, you know, always one step away from being a piece of shit. Yeah. And in this case, yeah. he, he was two steps over the line. Right. I feel like there was a time in my life, like I guess in those AMC days, like when that was the only time of year where you could watch this movie, where I had this like Mandela effect thing of like, I thought that he hurt Amanda mm-hmm. or like killed her to prevent her from like telling Tina the truth or whatever. Which obviously is not what happens. Yeah. But for some reason, like in my head for the longest time, I was like, doesn't he kill her mom? 
And I, I don't know how or why. But. I think it's maybe because of the way it plays from Tina's point of view when she sees him. I think her assumption is that he he did something. Maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Um, yeah. So, all right. Moving into our supporting characters, which is essentially all of the teeny boppers. We've got Stacy Greason as Jane. She is uh, the girlfriend of our birthday boy, Michael. That is the reason the friends are gathered at the house. They obviously don't make it to the house. Um, so she plays the girlfriend. She plays Jane. She, you know, there's some dialogue. She's the one who's put this together. But she, she tells him what's going on and ruins the surprise because they're having car trouble or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you could have just waited till it was fixed and it would still be a surprise for him. Whatever. Yeah. Um, she had a three-year run on Days of Our Lives. That's pretty much it. Is there anything we feel we need to say about Jane? No, she gets dispatched pretty quickly. Yeah, she's the first kill. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess she has that note. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we'll talk about, uh, the character of Michael, the birthday boy, who is played by William Butler. Uh, William Butler, you can find him in Ghoulies 2. You can find him in uh, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. You can also find him acting in the Night of the Living Dead remake from 1990. But he's also done a ton of behind-the-scenes work in his career. He's produced, and he's done makeup, and he's done special effects. He has also written screenplays. He wrote uh, Return of the Living Dead, Rave to the Grave, and Return of the Living Dead, Necropolis, which is a terrible movie. Yeah. Um, he also wrote Ginger Dead Man 2, Passion of the Crust, <laughs> and Ginger Dead Man 3, Saturday Night Cleaver. You really gotta think as you say that. Yeah. Ginger Dead Man. Ginger Dead Man 3. Um, so he has a lot of work in the genre. His whole career has essentially been in horror, um, William Butler. He's also gay. Clock it. Yeah. <laughs> um... Anything we want to say about Michael? He's dead for a long time and his friends don't like give a shit. They really don't. They really don't. But then like multiple people find his body in that tree. Yes. And do nothing about it. And do you know they're like, oh shit. Um, it's tough to be Michael. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, we've got Deborah. This is the weirdest part of the movie, I think. Um, Deborah Kessler as Judith and Michael Schroeder as Dan. The people camping. For both of these actors, this is their only credit. <laughs> and they're not connected to the storyline of people, of the, of the kids gathering in the house for Michael's birthday. Yeah. They're just campers that Jason comes across and kills. So I'm like, were they just two random people in the woods? <laughs> Honestly, high making? probability. Yeah, do you want to be in this movie? Just to get, like, an extra kill in there. Like, we'll say, hey, you two. Yeah. Which, I think it's worth noting that Judith's death in the sleeping bag is the coolest kill. Yeah. Um, and there's a fun homage to that in the remake, which is way more brutal. Um. Oh, and then we've got... We have Susan Jennifer Sullivan as Melissa. Melissa the bitch. <laughs> like almost uh, unbelievably bitchy. 
she is almost unbelievable, like cartoonishly bitchy. Um, she also, when she's in that like blue romper with the pearls, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, are you 35? Also, like it was eight in the morning or something ridiculous. Like, why was she that dressed? Yeah. Um. Yeah. She is she the biggest jerk in this franchise? I think so. Yeah. I th- like I said, it was almost cartoonish how how horrible of a human being she was and how catty and how much she just like was constantly thirsty for Nick. And it's just like that, like it was like that classic high school. Like there's always one, like, you know, like Mm -hmm. Mandy Moore in princess diaries. Right. She's yeah. She's Lana. She's Regina George. Um, interestingly, like in the documentaries, everyone said that they got along really well with her on set and she was like very personable and very nice. Um, and actually like there was, I think there was some tension between most of the cast and, and Larpark Lincoln. Hmm. Um, which is just interesting to note. Um, Susan Jennifer Sullivan, very off the radar now. Um, Crystal Lake memories actually has this moment where they memorialize her. Oh my God. In 2009, she did not die. She is alive. <laughs> That's fucking terrible. Could you yeah, imagine? She, she's very much alive. She's just off. The, she just doesn't act or anything anymore. That's um, they, yeah. So if you, if you're watching that when they do that for her, don't. She's not dead. <laughs> <laughs> um. Did somebody yeah. tell them? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Melissa, pretty nasty character, but actress apparently pretty great. All right, we've also got Elizabeth Catan as Robin, the redhead. Um, you can see her in Savage Dawn, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. After this movie, she was in Beretta's Island. She then retired from acting in 1999. Um, I think the one thing to note about Robin is that she gets the death sequence with the random unmentioned cat. It's a fucking cat that calls Yeah, no one has said that there's a cat. Which, when I watch it, I'm like, do you work for with Jason do you know Jason is this Jason's cat do you work for him never see the cat again (laughs) um she also gets the death where her character is thrown through the window and it's so obviously a stunt double it's cringy (laughs) um but that death scene was actually uh, a reshoot Uh, the original one had her getting chopped in half but Beekler did not like how it looked. So they reshot it well after they had finished production. Um, and they actually reshot it at the set of the Jarvis house from part four, which was back in California. Huh. So yeah, so Robin, uh, Robin, she hooks up with David, who's playing by John Renfield. He's like the bad boy stoner. Um, anything we want to say about Robin and David? He rolled a fat blunt. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like looking over the stuff and she sees all the, like the weed on the table. There is a massive blunt on the table. There is a mess. You're right. <laughs> and doesn't it seem like she gets excited by that? Yeah. Cause like, there's like that moment where she's like, Oh, and it like, it's like, Oh, like, is she going to take a hit or whatever? But we don't know. Cause that's when she, <laughs> Like, here's the noise or whatever. Yeah. Um, completing this little love triangle, which isn't really a triangle, 
We have Diana Barrows playing Maddie. Maddie the nerdy girl. I actually liked her. <laughs> Me too. I like this character a lot. Um, the shed sequence is good. Yeah. It, it reminds me of like, like the early films, like very part two, part three. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's extended, right? It's not sort of like a, like a quick kill. Like so many of the rest of them are like, she sort of like maneuvers around in there to try to avoid him. I like that sequence a lot. Yeah. I think it's also just cause I really remember it as a kid. Mm-hmm. And being really creeped out by that. Um, but yeah, Diana Barrows, um, she would later go on to be in Charles in Charge. And she's also in an episode of Freddy's Nightmares, as well as Knott's Landing. There's a lot of crossover here. Hmm. And she also plays the best mo- the best friend in My Mom's a Werewolf. Have you ever seen that? I have not. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> so dumb. Oh, boy. Um... Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I like I like this character. I don't know why she looks for David outside the house. And is shocked when she walks outside the house and he's not there. Like the second she walks outside, she's like, What's going on? Yeah, and I'm like, Well, why are why are you outside? Why are you in the woods? Yeah. Um Yeah, I like that character. Uh, now let's see. We've also got uh, Jeff Bennett playing Eddie. Yeah. The aspiring science fiction writer. <laughs> or something. Yes. Um, he uh, was also in an episode of Freddy's Nightmares. I, so many of this cast ended up being in Freddy's Nightmares, which is a bad show. Um, he's also gay. Clock Keeping track. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also gay. There's a weird, like knowing that when he says the line after he and, um, after Melissa rejects him when he's like, I have a date with a soap on the rope. I feel like that's some, some interesting context, maybe a weird nod if you know that. Um, and the funnest effects several years after this film came out, he had a fling with William Butler who played uh, they ended up like reconnecting at something. And at this point, um, Kevin Blair, Nick had already come out. And so they said, well, if he can be out, then I'll be out too. So they sort of came out around the same time and um, had a thing together. Good for them. Yeah. So then um, we have also got Heidi Kozak as Sandra. And Larry Cox as Russell. Uh, Russell is the character whose uncle owns the cabin, and Sandra is his girlfriend. Um, Heidi Kozak. He's weird. Yeah, he is weird. He's his outfit is also the most eighties. Yeah. That fucking shirt. Um, Heidi Kozak had a good couple of years. She was in 1987. She was in Slumber Party Massacre two. She's like she's the the band girl. Mm-hmm. Um, then she was in this movie. And then the year after she was in society um, where she plays like the bitchy girlfriend. Um, and then she kind of like, didn't do anything else after that. Um, but a good solid three years of horror. 
Um, and then she was also, uh, she had a recurring role as uh, Emily on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Uh, Larry Cox played David in Heathers. Well, I know who David is. I think it's someone who's like given a couple lines, so they give him a name. Um, but I also never have a problem rewatching Heathers, so maybe I will and attempt to find Larry Cox. Nice. Oh my God, there's so many people in this movie. <laughs> And then we've got Craig Thomas as Ben and uh, Diane Almeida as Kate. Um, they're the couple that has sex in the van and gets killed by Jason outside. And there's in like the night. This, yeah, in the night. And they have this weird tension because I guess he went to something that he didn't tell her about when they were supposed to be hanging out together. Um, I don't know. Uh, Craig Thomas is also gay. Clocker. Yep, and um, he says on the commentary that during production of the film, he fooled around uh, with Jeff Bennett. Good for Yeah. Um, and uh, Diana Almeida, Kate, Kate has, um, she her kill was way different uh, originally, um, and you can find it on YouTube. It was super edited down to the... Um, the eye thing. I don't actually know. What does he shove in her eye? I don't know because when they show her body later, I was like, what the fuck is in her face? Yeah. I've never in all these years, I don't, I don't know what he puts in there. I think it might be a balloon or something because she makes that comment before he gets out of the um, van to grab a balloon because they think Michael's outside. Yeah, they're going to surprise him. And I think, it, I think it's something like that, like a balloon on a knife or something. Pump maybe? Yeah. Okay, that makes more sense. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I, I was like, I, I was like, I just, even now, I was like, don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, and then finally, we've got Jennifer Banco, who plays young Tina in the prologue. Uh, she is most known for playing um, the Sawyer daughter, the creepy girl in um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. I knew she looked really familiar to me. <laughs> yep. And I was like, do I just think all, like, girls from the 80s and 90s with blonde hair are from Poltergeist? Like, I know. Like, what? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So she's in that. And um, John Ochran, who plays Tina's dad, um, who was on Days of Our Lives and Highway to Heaven and Welcome Back, Cotter. I don't have anything particular to say about either of them. If you do, go for it. No. Yeah. Right. So... Where did we land on how many people in this cast were LGBT? Uh, five. Five, yes. And that is why, dear listeners, this film has been known as Fry Gay the 13th. Because such a large number of the cast was part of the LGBT community. And there is sort of like this timeline of the many of the actresses and like, you know, in a lot of the documentaries and interviews and stuff talking about how um, they would make advances and flirt with a lot of the male actors and get rebuffed Yeah, <laughs> because, you know, one, as we've decided, they either weren't interested or they were fooling around with each other. Yes. <laughs> That's hysterical. Which is, it's, yeah, it's totally hysterical. It's hilarious. It's great. Um, on a somewhat downer note, uh, Kevin Blair, um, our lead guy, Nick, um, 
he actually ended up being outed by the Crystal Lake Memories documentary, um, which, which was the documentary from a couple of years ago. It's like six hours long that covers the whole franchise. He talked about his sexuality during his interviews, but he thought it was under the condition that it would be off the record mm. and that it would just kind of be used to talk about like, oh yeah, a lot of people on the cast were gay or were queer. But the documentary like showed him talking about that specifically. Um, so he ended up being outed by that, um, which is not cool. Yeah. Um, I think, and I hope that, um, he's doing much, much better with it now. But, um, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. He talks about on the documentary, like when he would be at horror conventions, like young gay fans of the franchise would come up to him and talk to him about, you know, feeling connected to him or inspired by him. And, and he would freak out because mm-hmm. he wasn't super comfortable with that part of himself yet. Yeah. So that's, that, that's sad. Yeah. Um, all right. So that rounds out our cast. Whew. So is there anything we feel we want to say about this film that we haven't quite yet as a slasher, as a Friday the 13th film? So one thing I was thinking is that it's, actually like out like if you take it out of the context of Friday the 13th it's actually kind of fun you know like I feel like they have a good cast of these like sort of like teeny bopper characters um you know I think they they're all more interesting than they have been in the past um you know and if this had been a movie about you know all that like the teeny boppers and like yeah this girl with weird telekinetic abilities what have you go to this you know, house in the woods where a serial killer had been, you know, put down years before, like, you know, and it, being outside the context of Friday the 13th, it would have been, you know, a really interesting um, movie. But I think, you know, it, you know, it had to constantly tie itself back to Friday the 13th. And I think that kind of really um, just blocked the sort of like interesting direction that um, it had taken with its concept. I agree with you, Miss Mel. I think, I think there's a lot of potential for the basic idea of the crossover, like really distilled down, mm-hmm. like putting a slasher up against someone with supernatural abilities. Yeah. Um, but because they were beholden to the franchise and because this was the seventh installment, it couldn't quite blossom maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I do think it's fun. I don't think it's quite as fun as part six. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I think just cause things get a little bit darker here. Um, I also think, well, I think there's way too many characters. I think there are a lot. And I think for what it is, there are definitely way too many characters. But I think, again, if you pulled it out and put it in a different context, that many characters might have been able to play well. Um, I think we could have exercised, like, you know, 
a few of them, but um, yeah. I think it doesn't, the, the sort of um, confines that the film is in don't help the, you know, aren't helped by the amount of characters that are, that are there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, all right. Now we're going to move into our next segment, which is one good scare. Mm -hmm. What do we each feel is the most frightening moment of the film? That can be a tough question when you're looking at the seventh installment yeah. of the franchise, but we will do our best. I would say not so much scary, but just, you know, that I felt something about was when her mom, when she found her mom's body, just because, you know, her mom was like such a... You know, throughout the movie, it was just, you know, it was her and her mom, and she was very protective of her mom, and her mom was very protective of her. Um, so you would hope that her mom, who had nothing to do with any of this, and is basically a bystander in the situation, would have made it through, but she did not. And she did not. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, I feel like when I think of this movie, I think of that moment where Eddie is on the couch and he's opening Michael's presents. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's that flash of lightning and we see Jason in the corner. Yes, I was thinking about that. Like, it's such a stereotypical thing to do, but I think it played so well here. And I was also like, why did it take them so long to do one of these? Yeah, exa exactly. That's You're totally right because this film doesn't spend time doing moments like that except for like this one instance mm -hmm. and i'm like oh yeah that feels very old school friday the 13th like you know seeing him in the background just standing there being creepy um yeah so i think of that moment and i sometimes think of the moment where when tina and nick have gone upstairs and there's this there's a shot of the staircase and we see jason coming up mm-hmm it's very quick. It's a little creepy, though. Yeah. Um, but probably more so the first one. Nice. So the view from the closet is uh, more or less like a, like a giant screen TV in this one. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it's... It is interesting looking at it in terms of like, okay, here's the heteronormative group of teenagers um, who all seem to be a little bit uncomfortable with each other. And maybe, you know, we're not sure as the audience if that's something we're picking up on or are they just bad actors or, you know, is, you know, is it, um, you know, something more. Um, and you could even make the argument there that in that context, the the sin that uh, Jason is smiting is heteronormativity. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. yeah. I would agree, I would agree. I also think when you have the knowledge of how many performers in this film were queer, mm -hmm. you view it a little bit differently. Yeah. And you, you pick up on some nuances and some, even like some of like those lines, like the soap on the rope line and some of that, that it, it just comes off a little bit differently knowing that like, oh, you know what? Like those two guys were fooling around with each other. Yeah. 
you know, this, like, even uh, the actor who played Ben on the the documentary or the commentary when they're going through um, basically his death scene. And he's like, yeah, I stopped having sex to, like, go look for a guy in the woods. Like, hello. <laughs> That's just funny. It uh, is pretty funny. Yeah. So just, just, you know, just thinking about that and, and the kind of um, amusing story of the actresses making advances on their, um, their male coworkers and getting rebuffed because the male coworkers were like messing around with each other. Yeah. Makes for a good, a good story. Um, I also think Melissa is like a classic, like campy bitch. Yeah. That a lot of like gay men idolize. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause she's so ridiculous. That scene where she, where she's stalking them in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> just because she wants to like get close to Nick. Yeah. Um, Cause she's like, like the, the, the character's a bitch, but she's also sort of like this badass, right? Because she owns it. Like she's not, she's interested in Nick cause she wants to get laid. Yeah. Like, just owning her sexuality that way is kind of cool. Yeah. So. Um, all right. And now we'll move into uh, our legacy legacy. What is a legacy segment? What's the impact of the film? How is it regarded now? Um, what's the pop cultural view? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it doesn't have the best... <laughs> rating or opinion um, among fans of the franchise now. Um, I actually think most people don't like this movie too well. Um, at the time, a lot of reviews called out the very weak finale, that it was predictable, that it was misogynistic, um, that it was boring. Um, I mean, I get that. Mm -hmm. I also feel like we also have the knowledge that, you know, it was heavily edited. Yeah. Uh, maybe the kills wouldn't have been as predictable if we had actually seen them play out the yeah. way they were intended to, but we really don't. Um, yeah. But however, uh, as we mentioned earlier, this is the film that is sort of regarded as the beginning of um the Jason, the definitive iconic Jason Kane Hodder begins his run here. Um, this version of him is the one most people are familiar with. Um, and in terms of sequels, of course, there are what? Nah. Five more after <laughs> So yeah, it definitely wasn't the death of the franchise by any means, despite um, the diminishing returns. Yeah. Right. So for my closing question. Closing question. Hit me. I would ask you um, if you were to concept a sort of sequel reboot of a horror franchise, um, what two people, what two characters, villains, what have you, would you pit against each other as either the actual you know, X versus X, or I just want to take this as a concept and, and do something with it. Okay, okay. 
great question. All right. I think I would pit <laughs> and they come from wildly different franchises. <laughs> Excited. But <laughs> I would see a movie. <laughs> Of Freddy versus Samara from The Ring. <laughs> what? <laughs> because they both sort of, they operate in the realm of like the spiritual, right? Yeah. The otherworldly. And, you know, he's in dreams and she's just like this like haunting specter and stuff or whatever. I want to see what happens when someone watches Samara's tape and they're having nightmares about it, you know, oh like God. in Springwood. <laughs> that was, listen, I had to come up with something. No, that's else. very inventive. <laughs> I would watch, I would watch that movie. No, that's very inventive. I enjoy that. What, uh, what's yours? Um, So the first thing that came to mind is honestly like kind of like the beginning of Saul where you've got these two people trapped in the room and they got to figure out how to get out except it's like it's like five final girls (sighs) who have to then figure out like who have survived like multiple installments of their franchise and now have to you know, but battle to the death to battle to the death to get out. Oh, to I get out. That. I like that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, unless you've got anything pressing to say, I think that wraps up our discussion on the new blood. I think it does. Yeah. Um, if you guys have anything pressing to say. Um, you can find us and talk about it. You can tweet us at splatterchatter666 on Twitter, minus all the vowels. Um, that's too difficult. Just search splatterchatter. We pop right up. You can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can hit up the blog spot, which is splatter-chatter.com. Yeah, finally got it. Um, we are also on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. Um, and Mr. Kriegers can tell you how you can tell us even more pressing things if you have more pressing things to tell us. If you have even more pressing things, you must tell us. Like, of course, you can email us, but you could also donate to us on Patreon. Yeah. Um, Patreon.com slash Splatterchatter666. We have got all kinds of perks for you if you choose to financially support us. Um, you could even influence uh, future episodes of the show. So give it a gander. Yeah. Right, so that is going to wrap up our discussion of all things telekinetic as they relate to Crystal Lake. Uh, the next Friday the 13th is not until August of 2021. So uh, it's oh a bit God. of a gap. <laughs> We've got a long yeah. time. It's a, it's a long time. But hey, you know what, by then, maybe we'll be able to, like, you know, 
hug each other again. Hey, right? You know, we'll, we might we'll record in the same place just because we can. Just because we fucking can. <laughs> Um, and when that rolls around, we will be covering uh, Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, in which somehow a cruise ship makes it from Crystal Lake, New Jersey, to Hudson Bay, <laughs> Manhattan, New York. You know. Oh, that's a film. Um, but that's a ways away uh, for our next episode, episode 81, which will drop in December. Uh, we're not sure what we're covering. So uh, stick around and find out. Um, but I'm sure it will be a good time. We want to take this moment uh, to remind you to take care of yourself. Uh, wear a mask. Mm -hmm. Be smart. Be safe. Have a great Thanksgiving if you're American. And, and if uh, not, fuck you. <laughs> and if not, fuck you. <laughs> and for now, uh, we want to remind you to always keep up the creep while we say au revoir, adios, 